Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Kurt. I'm one of the pastors at Crosswinds. I'm actually from the Spirit Lake campus. And Pastor Jordan and I are doing a pulpit swap today. And so this is fun. And Jordan told me, you know, before the building was opened, how excited he was. He's going to be able to share the Word of God with you in this space. And I want you to know that I've been the same way. I've been really looking forward to be able to be here with you, except my excitement is a little more deep-rooted than even Jordan's, because I can go back and I can remember the very elder meeting. It was actually in my home. It was in the summer. It was hot. The air conditioning was on. And we talked about the idea of becoming a multi-site church. And even then, in those very early conversations, we talked about opening a campus in Spencer. We felt God was call, calling Crosswinds to do that. I think God has been just so faithful, hasn't he? I remember when it all began, and then eventually it moved locations, then moved, moved locations again. Tim, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've been with it from the beginning. And then God you know, opened this location up and the construction, and, and now we're here. And I'm just so excited to be with you. I'm like, God has been so good, hasn't he? Been so good to us. I'm grateful. But I'm even more excited than being here in this new building is being here with you. Because you see, Crosswind's mission is not about building buildings. Crosswind's mission is about reaching people with Jesus Christ. This was our mission. More people gathered around the Word of God. More people falling in love with Jesus. More people excited about Jesus, using their gifts to serve one another and to reach our local communities. And to see you, some I've known for a long time, and some of you I don't even know yet, it is so encouraging to me to see what God has been at work doing through his church, both on the Spirit Lake campus and also here in the, the Spencer campus. Now, speaking about our mission, which is reaching people with Jesus, Pastor Jordan and I have been in the habit the last few weeks about sharing these reaching people with Jesus stories, about how God is using ordinary people, just like you, just like me, in ordinary ways to reach their community with Jesus. And I thought I'd be able to share uh, reaching people with Jesus story of something that's taking place on the Spirit Lake campus that you guys wouldn't normally know about. Now, as Steve will know, I've been here a, a long time. I've been at Crosswinds like 15 years, which means a variety of things happen when you get old. Number one, the hair doesn't just grow in your face. It also starts growing in your ears. Right, guys? Right? You know what I'm talking about? But the other thing that's exciting is you've had a chance to see people over a long haul at Crosswinds. I've seen people grow up in Crosswinds, and then I've seen them go away from Crosswinds and, and, and leave Jesus, but I've also seen them come back to Jesus and come back to Crosswinds and see the amazing story of what God's doing in their life. And this is one of those stories. It was about nine months ago, I was at Baumgars in Spirit Lake, just getting some pellets for the old pellet grill. You know, you're sort of walking by all those really cool, expensive grills that you wish you could buy, but you don't dare actually buy looking at one of those, and I ran across a guy that I knew grew up at the Spirit Lake campus. I knew him when he was a high schooler, and he had some real rough stuff happen in his life, a lot of difficulties, and he had walked away from Christ, he had walked away from the church, but here I was seeing him sort of as an adult, grown up, and we're talking about pellet grills. I mean, what else can you bond over? It's good. And we just began talking, and really good connection. And I said, hey, you got to come back to church. We miss you at Crosswinds. You know, Jesus loves you. And I didn't think much of it. And then about two months later, guess who walked in the door with his family and children? And he sat over on the side, and he had this thing with him that he said he hadn't opened in years. It's called a Bible. 
and God had been working in his heart, and he came to, sort of came back to Christ, and he's been involved in Crosswinds for the last nine months. And you say, well, that's the story about how simply sharing with a, somebody at church or simply sharing with somebody at the store can bring people to, to church and bring people to Jesus. Yes, that's part of the story, but to be quite honest, guys, that's just the setup for the exciting part of the story. Because you know what happens when people come to Jesus and they're really excited about Jesus? What do they start doing? Telling all their friends about Jesus. So you know what's been happening on the Spirit Lake campus? All of a sudden, these other young families start showing up. Same age kids. And one guy's been there now four weeks. He walks in, I begin talking to him. He says, yeah, I got invited by that guy over there who's brand new in the church. And he says, last time I was in church was I was in junior high. And he's been regular for the last four weeks. And we're seeing these families come to Christ. And it's all because... Simply, just people are excited about Jesus. People are willing to talk about Jesus and talk about their church when they see one another. They see people at the car wash, when they see people at Hy-Vee, when they see people at school. And God's been real faithful with that. And so my encouragement to you is we believe in something called providence. The Bible talks about this, that as we go about our life, none of those encounters and those meetings we have with people are by chance. That God has orchestrated things that we run across just certain people when we're at Baumgars, just certain people when we're at High V, and God wants to use those conversations as an opportunity to plant the seed of the gospel and then to invite people to Crosswinds or invite people to his church where all of a sudden they can come to hear more about him and, and hopefully be born again. So I'd encourage you with that, and God's been real faithful with that uh, recently at um, Spirit Lake. Well, with that, let me just take and turn to our study this morning. We're in the book of 2 Samuel, and today we're going to look at a famous speech. We all know about famous speeches. In fact, we know famous speeches that have sort of changed the direction of our country. You remember Martin Luther King's Jr.'s famous speech? I have a dream I have a dream that my four children will grow up in a country where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. You guys remember that speech? How that sort of changed even our country? Remember John F. Kennedy's famous speech? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We know those lines from those famous speeches. They've changed our country. The speech we're going to look at today in 2 Samuel is a very famous speech. In fact, all the prophets, the Psalms, much of the New Testament go back to this very famous speech. It's not a speech given by a, a man. It's a speech given by God. It's not a speech that will change just the future of a country, but it's a speech that will change the very history of the world. So we're going to go look at that. In fact, this is the longest speech God gives in the, in the Old Testament since the Ten Commandments. So it's a big one. By the way, this chapter will divide up into three parts. Uh, there's sort of the first three verses, which are by way of introduction. Then there's verses 4 through 16, which is the speech that God's going to give to David, which we'll study today. And then there's verses 17 through 29, which we'll study next week. So this week, we're just going to look at the first 16 verses. Now, if you have your outlines, I have put those in your bulletins for you. Just, we'll start with the background section here. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, the focus of that chapter was the rise of David. You remember, David became king over the whole nation of Israel. Uh, David was able to finally get a capital city, <laughs> Jerusalem. He was able to push out the other Philistines that incurred into the land, so David rose in power. 2 Samuel chapter 6, which is what we looked at last week, was about spiritual revival. 
David took the ark of God, which had been neglected by God's people and was in a forgotten place. And he moved that ark from a forgotten place in the life of his people to Jerusalem to make it central to the life of his people. God took the proper place. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the situation is David is now established. David is now at peace. The picture we have, he's sort of able to finally sit down on the lazy boy, hit that lever on the side, which brings his feet up. He's able to grab the remote and sort of relax a little bit. That's where he's at in this stage of his life. Because if you've been following him for quite some time, it's been a lot of chaos up to this point. And it begins with this. David felt guilty about his big house. Verse 1. Now when, the king, now, when the king lived in his house, and David has a big house at this point. It's literally a palace. It was built by carpenters. It was built by masons. We saw this house hinted at in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, where uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, had sent him carpenters and masons and all kinds of cedar. So David has built a cedar palace. Tyre, by the way, is a seacoast city. It's about 100 miles away from where David is located at in Jerusalem. So we see David has really become quite famous and quite powerful to have a business relationship with a guy 100 miles away before the invention of the internet. And he couldn't even text him. So David's reach and fame is really extended quite far at this point. David has arrived He's king. His enemies are conquered. He has this new palace, this big cedar palace. What should he do now? The rest of the first verse tells us this. And the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 8, the next chapter, we'll see that it'll, it'll recall some more of David's wars. But I think what it says here the Lord has given him rest from his surrounding enemies. It's talking specifically about the Philistines, who for years and for chapters, all the way back in 1 Samuel, those Philistines have constantly been coming in on the Israelites. Finally, David has rest from them. But notice where it says this peace and the rest came from. It was the Lord had given him rest. God is the one who gave him this peace. God is the one who gave him success. God is the one who brought him to this place of, re, of rest and ease. And here, I think, is a good application for us. Where are you at in your life this morning? Some of us are a little bit older. Some of us are more approaching our retirement years. You are now in a position of rest you are now in a position of peace. It's a time where you start to look back and you say, hasn't God been good to me? Isn't God the one who has been faithful to me? Isn't God the one who has brought me to this time of rest, who's brought me through the trials, who's brought me through all the difficulties I face? What's the appropriate response when we get to this stage of our life where all of a sudden we've gone through all the turbulent times and the difficult times of our younger years, when we get to these times of these restful years, the right response is to stop and to look back and thank God for being good, isn't it? And that's what David is doing right here. He's stopping, he's looking back and thanking God for giving him this time of peace and being faithful to him, and in gratitude for how good God has been to him and how faithful God has been to him, David begins to have an idea. And here's where it is. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. This is the first time we're introduced to Nathan the prophet. Nathan is a prophet to David and his kingdom, just like Samuel was a prophet to Saul when he was during his kingdom. Nathan and David, the picture are, 
is here that uh, they are sitting on the back porch of the, the Cedar Palace. And David and Nathan are able to sort of look over the city from that position. And they're probably drinking decaf coffee because it's after dinner. And they're looking over these things. And David is thinking to himself, you know, God has been so good to me. He's been so faithful to me. He's brought me through all of these trials and difficulties in my life. This God who has been so good to me, his house is a tent down below. I can see from my back porch while I'm in a cedar palace. This doesn't feel right. I feel guilty. God in a tent, me in a palace, when it's God is the one who's given me all of this success. He's given us all of this peace. Now, David is not thinking at this point about downgrading his, his house and moving into a tent. He's actually thinking about the other way. I should be able to upgrade God's house, give him a better place than a tent to be in. If I'm in a palace, maybe he should be in a, a palace as well. And here's a little application for us. Many times when we get to the point of being settled, we get to that stage where we're comfortable, we get to that stage of having a little bit of rest or a little bit of luxury. Many people, when they get to that stage, they become self-absorbed. All they start to do is think about what they can do for themselves. I can go play golf five days a week if I want. I can do what I want for myself because I'm finally established. I don't have to work. I don't have to labor. God's given me peace. It's all now about me. And here I think is something that's different about David. David reaches this point of establishment and peace and instead of focusing on himself, he starts to think of how can I focus on God and how can I give glory to God, the God who has been so incredibly good to me. Use my free time and my resources for his fame, not my fame. Now, as Christians, doesn't this apply to us? If you're somebody who has reached a period of financial independence, a period who you can, you can sort of do what you want, be ever so careful about having that period become a time of self-absorption, that it's all about you and your fun. I think it's a challenge here for us. Like David, we should say, now that I have this freedom, how can I use this time? How can I use these resources? How can I use this energy to give more glory to the God who has been so good to me and so faithful to me? For some people, they reach that stage and they're financially independent. They can give more generously than others because God has been good to them. Some can redeploy their leadership gifts that they've used in the business world and say, I can use those things for Christ's kingdom in the church to help the church be more successful at reaching its community. Others are maybe are craftsmen and they redeploy their gifts using their craftsmanship in, in God's house to help God's house and God's people have a better place where they can worship. That's all good. This is what God wants us to do. And this is essentially the same thing that David did. So David is trying to use this freedom uh, to bring more honor to God. But there's another thing I think is an example for, for us to follow out of David's life. When he has this idea about upgrading the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, he doesn't just run off and do it instantly by himself. What we see here is he actually goes and tries to get some godly counsel before he moves forward. He goes to somebody who he spiritually respects. He talks to Nathan the prophet about this idea, which I think is a very good thing for us to think through. If we have an idea about something we want to do to help bring more fame to God's name and build up the glory of Christ. It's always wise for us to run that idea by others and, and, and see what they say. Let's see what Nathan says. Well, Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. By the way, David is the guy who has the financial independence, the freedom and the resources to do creative things for God. 
But David always needs a Nathan. A Nathan is an encourager. <laughs> an encourager. Encouraging him in what he has in his heart to do. But here's where it takes a very interesting twist and turn. Look what happens to Nathan. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, would you build a house, build me a house to dwell in? In other words, God says to Nathan, when Nathan finally gets quiet, when Nathan is finally alone, maybe in the, the darkness of the night, the Holy Spirit speaks to Nathan and says, tell David to call off this building project. Now, here's a very good point of application for us. Even godly people with good intentions can sometimes give bad advice. David and Nathan are both godly men with good intentions at this point, but they get their gut instincts completely wrong with what God wants to do. Now, folks, we must be careful because as godly people, sometimes you'll have other godly people come to you and ask you, what do you think I should do? Here's the challenge in my life. Here's the situation in my life. And they say, I spiritually respect you. What should I do in this situation? And then many times what we do is we quickly run off and give them our opinion. And then people listen to us and take our opinion sometimes as if it was the very word of God. And folks, our opinion is not the word of God. Sometimes our opinions, just like David's and Nathan's, can be dead wrong. The only thing we know that is 100% true all of the time are God's words, not our words. So here's an application for you. When people come to you and they ask your advice about something, if you want to make sure you're right when you give them your advice, Give them as much of God's word that is applicable to their situation as you can. God's word will be right all the time. Your opinion, my opinion, may not be right all the time. So we want to balance our advice and our recommendations, filling them with God's word about things, not just our words about things. Now you begin to wonder, why is God putting a kibosh on David's plans to build a temple for the ark? Why does God not want David to build a big house? Seems like he has plenty of free time at this point. It would be a good thing to do. The Bible gives a variety of reasons as to why. We're not going to look at it this morning, but in 2 Chronicles, or 1 Chronicles 22, 7 through 8, uh, David tells his son Solomon that God told him he had shed too much blood. He was a man of war, and it should be a man of peace who should build the temple. But those aren't the reasons that are given here in the next verses. God gave David two reasons why he was not to build the ark a house in the following verses. Verse 6. It says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. One of the reasons that God wanted his dwelling to be a tent was so he could travel with his people. God wanted to be with his people. You see, if he had built a, a a temple or a, a fixed building early on, then God's people would, as they traveled, would have to like make a long pilgrimage just to get back to him, just to, to be with him, to be where the ark was. But God didn't want it that way. He wanted to travel with his people. He wanted to be with his people. And folks, nothing has changed at all. The God we serve more delightful than him than being in a glorious house is being with the people that he loves. That has not changed one bit. Folks, think about Jesus. 
Jesus, the Son of God, who created everything in the entire universe, according to the first chapter of Hebrews, he took on flesh so he could completely identify with us, so he could be with us, so he could save us completely. And even after he rose from the dead and then he ascended back into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. And when we trust in Christ, God literally comes to dwell in us and to be with us because our God does not want to be in a big temple. The joy of his heart is to be with you and to be with me because he loves us far more than he loves a building. Amen. Now, What's amazing is why God loves to dwell in us and his Holy Spirit comes into us when we trust in Christ. What's so amazing is, you know, when we gather like this on a Sunday, when God's people gather to worship, he dwells with us in an even more intimate way and a more special way than he ever dwells with us individually when we're isolated and alone. That's one of the reasons we are to gather for worship. God is with us today in a way that is even more special. Look what it says in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's why when you come to church, you seem like you have a more richer and fuller experience of Jesus oftentimes than you ever are on your own. That's why God's people are to gather, because he dwells among us. So the first reason that... David wasn't to build a, an ark, or excuse me, a temple for the ark, is because God intended to have a tent. He wanted to travel with his people. He wanted to dwell with his people. Here's the second reason. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He says, in the past, when the people were traveling, I've, I've never asked for a house. I've never asked for a building of, of cedar. I didn't want that. David, I have not commanded that of you at this time. And all of a sudden, David is starting to realize that this idea of making a, a temple, a house of cedar for the ark, it may not necessarily be a bad idea, but right now it's David's idea. It's not God's idea. God has never commanded him to do this. And then I think there's a good point of application here. Do you know, we can have ideas about things we wanted to do for God, but they may just be our ideas, not what God necessarily wants. Do you ever realize that? We have ideas, sometimes of the things we want to do for God, but they could be just be our ideas, not necessarily what God wants. Sometimes those ideas come to us after we've had too much of that coffee over there. You guys know what I'm talking about? Where you have all those great ideas and all they are is caffeine. It's not the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Now, how do we discern if an idea is actually something God is calling us to do versus something that we just think we may want to do? Here's what I would say to you. Number one, look in the Bible. What kind of ideas does God get behind? You start to realize, maybe your idea is just a selfish idea. Or you can say, this is the kind of idea that God does get behind. You pray about it. You say, Lord, uh, I'm trying to discern if this is just what I want to do or if this is what you want me to do. Holy Spirit, please open doors if you want me to go forward. Please close doors if you want to stop me. I just want to do only what you want me to do. I don't want to be just following my ideas. I want your ideas. And when we pray about those things, God does have a way of opening and closing doors to lead us that way. Also, I'd recommend we get some counsel. Uh, sometimes talk to friends that we spiritually respect, and they can ask us questions about our idea to help us see from a different angle if this is something that is just in our head or if it's something that God is calling us to do. So the second reason is we see at this point, this is not what God wants David to do. It's just in David's head. Now, what we launch into here is something called the Davidic covenant. Uh, this is going to be a 
huge thing. Many of the Psalms, most of the prophets, and most of the New Testament will go back to these verses we're about ready to study. I will tell you that in some ways these are difficult verses, in some ways they're challenging verses. I'm going to do my best to make them very applicable and understandable, but we'll move quickly through part of it and slowly through other parts of it. So let's just work on this. We see here's the third point. God had a plan for David's life. And it's going to say, God's going to say, David, I've had my hand on your life in the past, and I have my hand on your life for the future, and I have my hand and plans for you on the even distant future, way beyond anything you would know. So here we are. God was at work in David's past. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. God says, David, look back on your life. I was the one who began working in your life when you were just a little boy. I was the one who called Samuel to anoint you as king. I was the one who cut off all of the enemies who tried to destroy you. You didn't have to lift a finger to cut off, to get rid of Saul, did you? You didn't have to do anything to get rid of Abner. You didn't have to do anything to get rid of Ishbosheth. I have been faithful to you. I have protected you and I have carried you through. And I think this is probably a good application for us here, just briefly. If you've been around this planet for a while and been a Christian for a while, can't we stop and look back at God's faithfulness to us? Can't we stop and look back and see how God has taken people who were enemies against us, who were trying to destroy us and remove them from our life? God has been faithful and gracious to David in the past. Now it continues, and God will be continue to be faithful and gracious in the future. God has a plan for David's near future. And here he says this, God will give David a great name. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. Well, I would think at this point, David already has a great name. He's the king of Israel. But God says out of his grace, it's going to be even greater a great name of like famous on the earth, like we're talking about him today kind of great, long-term greatness. And if some of you are uh, deeper Bible students, you may recognize here a parallel between this and a promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Look what God said to Abraham in his name. So I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's happening is this promise that was given to Abraham, that he would have a great name upon the earth, comes on to David, picks up the same promise, and sort of dovetails it in and says, by the way, this promised Abraham is now going to be continued to be fulfilled through you, David. And I thought to myself, this is pretty wild. What would it be like to have God say to you, I'm going to make your name great on the earth? God said that to Abraham. That's pretty wild. God said that to David. And I'll admit, for a brief moment in my study this week, I said, I wish he would say that to me. And then as soon as I said that, God struck me with this thought. He did say that to me, and he said it to you, all through Jesus Christ. Look what the Bible says in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you realize that through Jesus Christ, you cannot be more blessed or more honored in the entire universe and in the history of all that God has done 
other than you are right now because of what he's done for you through Jesus. In all of eternity, it will be a grand display of God's incredible grace upon you and me, those who deserve the lake of fire, who are now been transformed into the object of God's greatest blessings that he will ever show anywhere to anything or anybody. You and me, through Jesus. I think that sounds like our name is going to be pretty great, isn't it? Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, it continues. God will give his people a place, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God will give them a land that they will stay in, which, by the way, seems to prove true, because today, the Israelites are still in what? Israel. He's been faithful. He's kept them there. They've been in exile in Babylon, then they come back. They leave and they come back. God's given them a land. And God will give peace to his people. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly for the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And God will give David and his people rest. Verse 11, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Now it switches to what is the distant future. And this is exciting. There's something that's going to go on when you look at these kind of prophecies. These kind of prophecies. It's called telescoping. That's a theological term. What it means is like when you look at mountains in the distance, they look like they're close to one another, but they're actually like miles separating. But on the horizon, they look almost like they're back to back. This is what happens sometimes with prophecy. The prophecy we'll read could be taking place and fulfilled in the very near future, but there's elements about it that'll be talking about the much greater, far distant future. As we look at these upcoming verses here, we'll see parts of these things that will be fulfilled in David's near future with his descendant, his son Solomon, but other parts of these will be sort of much further out. You'll see what I mean. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David, you wanted to make me a house? (laughs) We're doing a different plan. I'm going to make you a house. By the way, the house he's referring to that he's going to make for David is not a physical mortar and brick house. It's the house of David. It's a dynasty. It's the kingly line of David. There will always be a son of David on the throne. And here's what it goes to next. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I'm going to create your offspring and raise him up as a king. Now this doesn't jump out to you. But if you were reading this in Hebrew, it would jump out to you. There's a little bit of weirdness here as you start to see things take place. It's the word offspring. The word offspring is in the singular, not the plural. So it's talking about one particular offspring. But yet, weren't we talking about a dynasty, the house of David that would continue to reign? Uh, It doesn't seem to make sense. Now, this word offspring is also used as you go back to Abraham and his, God's promise to him. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. But here's where it gets a little funky. That word offspring that was spoken to Abraham is also in the singular, not in the plural Now, I'm going to do a spoiler alert. When you go to the book of Galatians, Paul quotes that section from to Abraham and says this. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one. And to your offspring, 
who is Christ. All of a sudden, we're seeing here that this word is cluing us in. What's about ready to take place is some real specific prophecy about Jesus. Let's continue in what the um, Davidic covenant says. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in one sense, Solomon, David's son, does build the house for the ark. And he does have a lasting dynasty. But David's dynasty going eternally, going forever and ever, something sounding a little bit weird about this. Now, the Old Testament prophets, the, the psalmists and First and Second Kings constantly look back on this particular promise that we just read, that God was going to establish for David a dynasty that would not end, that would not be destroyed. And when terrible things happen in the land of Israel, and they're in exile, and things are falling apart, they kept going back to this promise that God made to David that he would always have one of his offsprings that would ultimately sit on the throne. For instance, look at Amos. The easy way to remember what's going on with Amos is the world is a mess when Amos is writing. And look what Amos says. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. God promised there'd always be a king on David's line God's going to be faithful. I don't know how it's going to take place. He'll raise somebody up. Isaiah, same thing. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we have these two problems. This is talking about a dynasty of David, but it uses the term offspring in the singular, not in the plural. So it's talking about one particular heir of David. It's talking about this dynasty lasting forever. And that seems to be a little crazy. Then we go to the next line and things get even more interesting. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This particular offspring in the line of David will have God as his father, and he will be to me a son. Well, that would sort of make sense as to why his kingdom would last forever, because the only one who lasts forever is God himself. Then you turn to the book of Hebrews, and what does it say this particular verse in 2 Samuel 7 is referring to? For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, and here's the quote, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That line is referring to Jesus, who has God as his father, he is the son of God, and yet he is a king in the line of David, who is raising up a kingdom of David who will last forever. Now, knowing this is the background of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and what it's talking about, let us look at what the angel Gabriel says to Mary about the announcement of Jesus' birth and hear this in a different light now that you know that background. And Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see what Gabriel is saying? is that the child in Mary's womb is the specific fulfillment of this prophecy given in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The throne of David's kingdom, 
It's going to be one particular person who is going to be God as his father, who's going to be the son of God, who's going to set up a kingdom who will last forever. There it is, right there spelled out in the Annunciation to, to Mary about Jesus' birth. Now, when you know this and you go back to your New Testament, you find the New Testament has all over it people either recognizing Jesus as the fulfillment of this prediction in 2 Samuel chapter 7 or asking Jesus if he is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look at Simon Peter. See, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, which means the anointed one, which means the king and line of David, the son of the living God. Peter recognizes Jesus as the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. By the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a description of who Jesus is. The anointed one of God, that's the king, who is the son of God. That's a fulfillment there of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Or you go to Mark chapter 14, verse 61. But he remained silent and made, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the anointed one in the line of David, the son of the blessed, the one whose father is God? He's asking, Jesus, are you the familiar of 2 Samuel chapter 7? People either recognizing Jesus as this or asking Jesus if he is this. Now, the text continues, and it sort of flips out of this long-term look at the son of David, who is the son of God, and goes back to the more immediate sons of David. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Saul, when he sinned, God brought his kingdom to an end. When David's descendants sinned, and they will sin. They will be disciplined, but not destroyed. Because ultimately, in David's line, there is coming a different king, a king whose father is God. Jeremiah speaks about this. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Jeremiah says, God has guaranteed it that the kingly line of David will never, ever end. It's as guaranteeable as the sunrise the next morning. But look what else Jeremiah says. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Uh, not one of these sinful sons. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it'll be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There's coming a king whose name will be the Lord is our righteousness. Now, what about Jesus? What was he like? Was he a, like another sinful son in David's line? Absolutely not. First Peter chapter two. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Or Matthew chapter three, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. No sin. Now we go to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, David. Your throne shall be established forever. How can David's throne and his kingly line be established eternally? Only by one descendant in the line of David who is a different descendant, not a sinful descendant, like so many in David's line were but a pure, a righteous descendant whose father is God, who's known as the son of God. Isaiah says this about him. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. The eternal king from the house of David is Jesus Christ. We saw that prophesied when the, the angel Gabriel said that to his very mother, that he would be the fulfillment of this prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. A righteous king who doesn't just build a house, like a physical house, he built a different house called the church of redeemed people saved by him. Now, the question is, in the New Testament, people were either recognizing Jesus as the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7 or wondering if Jesus was the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. The question is, when you look at Jesus, what do you see him to be? Just another man or the long-awaited king? The king who God has predicted who has come to save you and me. Matthew says this when talking with Peter. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, you are the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Today, if you recognize Jesus as the Savior, the long-awaited king in the line of David, and you have trusted him and be saved by him, you know who gets all the credit for opening our eyes? God the Father. God the Father is the one who has been gracious to us to open our eyes to recognize Jesus for who he truly is so we can be saved by him. Because you know you and I know that in this world around us, there are plenty of people who have heard about Jesus. They know about Jesus, but they have rejected Jesus. And they cannot be saved by Jesus when they have turned away from him. I think the only proper response for each one of us, if we've been saved by Jesus because we can see him and recognize him for who he is, is to turn and thank God. Thank God for opening our eyes. And so I think that's what I want to do as I close. Let's just close in prayer and join me in thanking God for opening our eyes to be able to recognize the great Jesus, our Savior, the long-awaited Son of David. Heavenly Father, thank you for being so good to us. Just like you told Peter that the reason he could recognize you, Jesus, as the long-awaited fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the one in the kingly line, whose father is God and who is known as the son of God. I thank you for opening Peter's eyes. I thank you for opening our eyes so we can be saved by Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to talk to others in our neighborhood, help us to talk with others in our community, that by us just being able to share the truth of what Jesus has done for them and the forgiveness that Jesus offers them and the new life Jesus has purchased for them, we ask that they would be saved too and that we would be a church reaching people with Jesus, the good news of what Jesus has done for us because we are a church who sees Jesus for who he actually is, the son of David, the son of God, and the savior of the world. And all God's people said, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.